Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast, everyone. And today we're going to bring you the audio from a briefing that we did for congressional staff on the situation on the northern border with Canadian truckers. Uh, Certainly this has been in the news a bit recently. We wanted to understand a little bit more about this. And so without further ado, let's go to the event audio with my colleague Chris Sands. Welcome, everyone, to another briefing from the Wilson Center. Here at the Wilson Center, we strive to be the bridge between the world of learning and the world of public affairs. We certainly are happy to have with us some experts from our Canada Institute today who are going to help us really understand what's going on with these protests that we have been seeing uh, with truckers, with farmers, with many individuals blocking border crossings, disrupting supply chains, I'm really going to try to understand what it all means going forward. So I want to introduce my colleague, Chris Sands, who is the director of the Canada Institute. I will turn it over to you, Chris, to introduce our speakers. Thanks very much, Aaron. This week, Canada's been on everyone's minds. I've pulled together two of our outstanding global fellows with the Canada Institute here at the Woodrow Wilson Center. We have with us today, Catherine Burke-Friedman, Uh, who is with the University of Buffalo, uh, for a long time with the University of Buffalo Regional Institute. She is a uh, regular border region expert, a real outstanding uh, talent. So we're very glad to have Catherine. We also have with us Martin Liardi Anderson, Executive Director of the Cross Border Institute at the University of Windsor, just across the river from Detroit. Uh, Windsor has been ground zero for the protests in the last week, and so she's been there on the scene. In fact, both Catherine and Marta have been on the scene watching what's going on on the ground while I sat over in Washington. So uh, I want to make sure that you get a, a real eyewitness view, the kind of thing you might have heard from your constituents, but with their expert angle. And then we'll have each of us just talk for about five minutes and then open it up to your questions so we can drive this discussion to where you would like it to go. Uh, With that, let me turn it over to you, Catherine, to uh, start us off. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for asking me to participate today. So I thought I would start out um, and just take a minute or two to set the context. And and I'm assuming that most of you folks may know a little bit about the Canada-U.S. relationship, but maybe not a lot. Having said that, it's important to understand that Canada and the United States represent the second largest bilateral trade relationship in the world. And Canada is by far our, the United States, our largest trading partner and the largest buyer of U.S. goods. 18% of total U.S. exports, it's more than twice uh, of um, two times of what China purchases from us, goes to Canada. Canada buys vehicles and auto parts and plastics and aircraft. And it's the most important customer. Canada is the most important customer for 36 states. Okay. The United States in turn, we return the favor. 76% of Canadian exports are bought by Americans. And again, there's a range of products that we buy here in the United States, vehicles, auto parts, plastics, groceries, And out of that tremendous number of products, 78% are raw materials and parts and components that are used to create goods here in the United States. So this is why you should care. This is why Congress should care. This is why your constituents care, because Canada and the United States Our supply chains are highly integrated. So when something is happening on the Canadian side of the border, it really does impact us here in the United States. Now, given 
the you know the second largest bilateral trade relationship in the world it's heavily heavily dependent on land as the mode of entry as the mode of transportation well over 78% of goods traded between Canada and the United States cross at land ports of entry. So again, this, these are just a couple of numbers to put a point on the importance of the land border and why the um, you know us here in the United States should care about what's going on in um, in Canada. The the Ambassador Bridge is the number one truck crossing. Thirty percent of all U.S. trade, U.S. Canada trade, crosses at that bridge. And it's number two for passenger crossings. In my region, the binational Buffalo Niagara region, we are number one for passenger crossings. We have 21% of all Northern border crossings with regard to passengers. And we're number two with regard to truck crossings. So over the past week or so, our region has not been as disrupted by the protests in Canada. Um, the OPP did close Buffalo bound lanes on the QEW and Fort Erie on Saturday and Sunday. It was really more in an effort to prevent protesters from coming to the Buffalo Niagara region to protest and shut down um, the bridges. But because we are so integrated, it, it is our problem. And we see this playing out in, in two different ways. First, supply chain impacts. And again, um, my colleague Marta is going to talk to you about the auto industry and the supply chain impacts in that particular industry. We've also seen supply chain impacts in terms of food. So the big takeaway from my perspective with regard to supply chain issues is this. These, these, these issues will hit U.S. consumers, translate into voters, in their wallets when you see increase in prices with regard to cars and groceries and other manufactured goods here in the United States that depend on Canadian exports to the US. The second impact is really a, a, a more regional impact. It's an impact that you see in cross-border communities along the northern border, along the 49th parallel. Any disruption at the border logically keeps people away from the border. And for urban region, urban cross-border regions like Buffalo, Niagara, like Detroit, Windsor, um, that means that tourists, folks who would come across the border to um, spend money on retail or, or leisure are staying away. These borders disruptions, these, these um, protests that are taking place create uncertainty, not only for business, but for consumers. And so you see them staying away. Businesses on the US side are suffering severe economic impacts. And it really is a lose-lose situation all around. Excellent. Thank you very much, Catherine. Over to you, Marta. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Catherine, for, for providing some context. Um, uh, specifically, uh, I'll, I'll address what Catherine was referring to with regard to the auto industry. This region, the Windsor-Detroit region, so geographically we're talking about south, southwest Ontario and southeast Michigan, heavily integrated with regard to the automotive industry, which includes the automated and advanced manufacturing sector. And I want to purposefully pull that out of this whole uh, world of automotive to focus on one aspect that really impacts both sides of the border. The automated and advanced uh, manufacturing sector has proven an area of both of our economies where we are world leaders for various reasons. And it links to this whole discussion about supply chains and how integrated they are and why they have uh, purposefully developed the way they have developed. And it's, it's for very good reasons. It's about economies of scale naturally, but moreover, it's about leveraging a skilled and expert labor force, a workforce on both sides of the border. So in a world, uh, and, and it's been like this uh, and increasingly so over the last few years, in a world 
where there is a shortage of skilled labor in a sector of our economies where we are world leaders, it makes a lot of sense and it is actually, uh, you know, helps build this integrated economy that we can leverage each other's labor force in order to fill the gaps when we experience those gaps. And this is what the auto industry has done so very well across our two nations. And, you know, the question then, and, and that's just one example, right? We could say the same across uh, the agriculture uh, sector as well, specifically greenhouse uh, greenhouse uh, growers, where we leverage each other's expertise in agriculture uh, and specifically in greenhouses, where you see the largest amount of greenhouse growing in this region as well. It's really quite fascinating when you take a look at the economics of the knowledge base and the skilled trade and the labor force availability. The other thing I think Catherine touched upon was how interesting it is to see um, how other areas are integrated. So the automotive industry, let's, let's face it, we're moving about $300 million a day just across the Ambassador Bridge. Most of that is the US selling into Canada. So for those who think this is all about Canada selling into the US, well, let's take a pause. Again, out of that $300 million every day, most of that is US sales into Canada. Most of that, interestingly enough, is headed for Ontario, one province. So you imagine, again, what this means for uh, you know for many states, as as Catherine uh, indicated, but across national economies, because it's not just as we all know, it's not about that one job. The auto industry, I think, uh, when I used to work in the auto industry, was we used to say one in seven jobs can be directly related to an assembly job in one of the big three. So if if we look at that, it's probably even more uh, than one in seven jobs. But we're also looking at the agriculture sector. We're looking at medical research and medical supply chains. We're looking at the medical um, uh, people who, who work in the medical field on the Canadian side that support hospitals in the Detroit and Southeast Michigan area. There's approximately 6,000 of them every day that leave the Canadian side and go onto the U.S. side to support various medical establishments and organizations, including research that we share across border in medical research. It's quite um, a unique relationship. I say it's not repeated anywhere else in the world. And most of the time, it works spectacularly well over the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years. And in, in my uh, looking at this over you know, the 25 years that I've been involved in cross-border uh, issues, I think there's only really two events that have ground cross-border traffic. One was 9-11, and the other one was demonstrations at the Ambassador Bridge here in Windsor. I want to also touch on something Catherine said. It's not just the economy that's integrated. And this speaks to the stated policy, both by Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden. There's an exceptional amount of focus on secure and resilient supply chains. And both the prime minister and the president came out in a joint statement to say that we should pay a lot of attention and we will focus attention on those resilient and um, secure supply chains between our two countries. And it really is underpinned by the fact that across the borders at various regions, our families are integrated. Our friends visit each other on a regular basis. We have cousins that live on both sides of the border. And it's not easily, um, when something happens at the border, I think, I think Catherine would agree. That's probably why we feel it so much more is because we do have friends and family on the other side. And if we can't get to them, it becomes very personal very quickly. Um, and I think that's part of the underpinning of this great relationship that we enjoy that I, I would say is quite unique um, and uh, we're very proud of it. 
So Chris, um, I don't know if there's anything more you want me to add to the introductory comments, but I would really like to take a look at how we got to where we're at and maybe how we avoid going there again. Absolutely, thank you, Marta. I'll just make a few comments here and then we'll open up to questions. And uh, you may see in the chat, uh, I think Aaron's looking to uh, stimulate some questions. What I'm gonna try to do is focus on a recent uh, study that we did at the Wilson Center which was the, the Wilson Task Force on Public Health and the U.S.-Canadian border. The task force members were pretty notable. We had uh, former Deputy Prime Minister of Canada and Canada's first public safety minister, uh, Anne McClellan. We had former Quebec Premier Jean Charest. And on the U.S. side, we had the former Democratic Governor of Washington State, uh, Christine Gregoire, and the former Republican Governor of Vermont, Jim Douglas, all participating in the task force. Over the course of the first year of the border restrictions, they looked carefully at the operation of the restrictions and, uh, and how they were impacting communities. Uh, we can put a, a link to that report in the chat so that if you're interested in finding it, it's also very Googleable. you can take a look at, at, your, at your leisure. But a couple of points stand out, uh, having worked with the task force throughout. First, there wasn't one set of joint border restrictions that the US and Canada rolled out in a coordinated uh, fashion. In fact, there were two sets of border restrictions, the Canadian restrictions, and the American restrictions. They seemed to agree on one point, which was uh, the border was restricted except for essential traffic only. Um, essential traffic deemed to be supply chain support, uh, truck drivers going back and forth who were called essential and actually hailed in both countries for continuing to take risks to make sure that we, we got the stuff we needed at our grocery stores and, and elsewhere. However, um, over the course of two years, we operated that way. And then the Canadians first and the Americans somewhat second, I think the Canadians took the bigger jump here, decided that those essential workers now had a conditional ability across the border and they added the vaccine mandate and uh, proof of, of vaccination. Now, 90% of the truck drivers in Canada are, are said to have been vaccinated already. So you know it's not because they don't wanna be vaccinated. I think that the response uh, in large part, the reason this became such an issue was a resentment of that phraseology of being essential one day and next thing you know, you're, you're uh, a racist insurrectionist because you're challenging Ottawa because they're putting a restriction on you. I think the Canadian government has misread this protest badly and I think in some ways made it worse. A second comment I would make is the essential traffic provision, um, was part of a public health-led management of the border. And although our public health authorities are tremendous and they bring a lot of science and understanding of the pandemic to the table, uh, they do not necessarily know how the border operates. And the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, and on the Canadian side, Public Safety and the Canada Border Services Agency were largely on the side, helping to implement the restrictions, but, it, but not necessarily defining them. And so. We lost something very important in border management, and that is the idea of risk management. After 9-11, our border security officials, realizing you'd never have 100% guarantee of no more terrorism, decided to focus their resources where the risk was highest. And risk management allowed them to do a lot with only a limited amount of budget, sometimes limited amount of staff at individual border crossings. There is real value in that in a pandemic era, focusing your resources where the risks are highest. How do you determine risk? You have to see whether people have been vaccinated. You see whether they've been boosted. You see a recent test result. We didn't give our border officials the ability to manage risk at the border. And we moved away from risk management to a kind of a zero risk paradigm, similar to the zero COVID rules that, that China has been trying to implement at home. This is a really tricky rule and pivoting away from that I think required more preparation than, than the Canadian government gave it and more justification that we're moving towards a risk management model, which makes sense in, in, in many ways. A third comment, the government's avoided or failed to take advantage of our trusted traveler programs and our trusted shipper programs. We have uh, CTPAT, the Custom Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. We have the FAST program, which links that the CTPAT with a Canadian equivalent program. And we have the Nexus card, uh, not to mention global entry, which applies for, for many Americans. These are voluntary programs into which people sign up and are sharing some of their information in order to get expedited clearance across the border. 
those programs didn't really operate uh, in their normal way because we weren't providing expedited clearance and because we were not asking the people who want to be in that program to maintain their eligibility by becoming vaccinated and sharing that information with officers so we could process them more quickly. That was a multi-million dollar investment that the Congress made in those programs. And rather than leverage it, we, we left it on the side. And I think going forward, trying to be as, um, as constructive as possible, what the Canadian truckers have done just on the eve of the two-year anniversary of these border restrictions is pointed in the direction that we need to go, which is a pivot to risk management, a pivot to using the programs we have, and a pivot to having border security officials at the table and determining how we manage the border in the interest of public health and, and citizen safety. I'm going to stop there. I already feel like I've been a bit preachy, and we'll go to the questions from the audience. Aaron, over to you. Thank you, Chris. I'll, I'll kick it off with one that really piggybacks off of what you were just talking about. We have this infrastructure at the border that was really set up after 9-11. A lot of that is housed under DHS, but what we've seen during the pandemic is a lot of decisions being made by CDC. So help us understand a little bit more deeply how this works on our side of the border, but also how it works on the other side of the border and how these systems can marry up or where it's not working. Uh, I'll start, but I definitely have uh, Marta and Catherine jump in after. Um, the first thing to say is that because of the nature of the response to the pandemic, I think a lot of decisions were centralized in the White House and the prime minister's office. And there were COVID task forces in both cases, and they were made up largely of public safety or pu public health officials. And it makes sense early on in the pandemic. Um, what was absent, I think, was a larger voice for, for our border security officials. So uh, we have all the tools, but maybe we didn't have the right people at the table. Many of those decisions made sense in the early months of the pandemic while we were trying to figure things out, made less sense as time went on because we didn't adapt the program. The third point I would make really goes to why the border was part of our security uh, response to COVID. And this goes back to SARS, uh, which was, there was a SARS outbreak that originated in China that affected Toronto and to a lesser extent, Vancouver in 2003. In responding to SARS, Canada, the US and Mexico got together and created a North American uh, plant and animal pandemic uh, influenza plan. The first of those plans came out in 2008. It was part of the Security and Prosperity Partnership effort that had been captained by uh, the Bush, George W. Bush administration and counterparts in Canada and Mexico. And it focused on screening air travelers because that was how SARS came to North America and had a very sort of footnotey mention of the land border. That then transitioned to an update during the Obama years in 2012 of the plan that included a little bit more detail, and it was a response to H1N1, which was the second big pandemic that the governments had managed. Um, and it took it out of the Security and Prosperity Partnership and put it into a regular standing uh, plan that the three governments maintained. So come to this crisis, many of the viewers will know that at the North American Leaders Summit earlier or late in 2021, the Biden administration, Canadian and Mexican governments agreed to revisit the North American plant and animal pandemic influenza plan to have a more sophisticated model for how to use the land border in this. We've never put so much strain on the land border ever before. And so that's, I think, one area where we can also plan for the next pandemic once we've got the handle on where we are now. But uh, let me stop there and see Catherine. Uh, uh, Marta, do you want to jump in? Mm. Only to reiter reiterate your your brilliance, uh, and it, um, you know the, the way. Just you know, very briefly, the way I think about it is, uh, you know, prior to September 11th, really the border was inconsequential, right? It was just nobody. It was all about flows of people and goods and services across the Canada-U.S. border. In the immediate post 9/11 environment, maybe almost a decade. Officials had to balance those free flows with this new idea of security, right? You know, pretty serious security. And now, another, you know, another 10 years later, um, it took about, about a decade for officials to get that balance right between security and trade. Now, about a decade further on, they have to balance security, trade, and public health. 
And as Chris mentioned, these are bureaucracies. These things take time. But um, I think the good news is that there are places like the Canada Institute that come up with these terrific policy ideas for policymakers to take and and um, run with. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Marta? I would just add, Chris, something that we've been talking about at the Wilson Institute over the last couple of years, and that is, how do we get back to those things that worked really well after 9-11? And one of those things was a continuous dialogue between various levels of government. So not only did you have a structure that had emerged um, under the Security Prosperity Partnership and then evolved under President Obama and needs to be looked at again, but it's that continuous dialogue at the federal state, provincial, and municipal level. So big city mayor to big city mayor, understanding where roles and responsibilities start and stop and how they link together. And I think in Canada, for sure, one of the, one of the challenges in responding to the demonstrations was a really clear understanding of those roles and responsibilities and how are they buttressed by existing legislation or not. Um, so I, I would just add that much. Well, Marta, can I, can I pick up on something you just said? You know, I, I grew up in Detroit and, uh, and you're in Windsor. I think one of the questions that I've heard people ask is, you know, was the problem that we have the Ambassador Bridge and we have that tunnel and we don't have the Gordie Howe International Crossing yet. Uh, can you put that into context? Would that have made a difference here? And, and to what extent, where are we actually with the, the Gordie Howe Bridge? So the Gordie Howe Bridge is on track um, uh, to open in December 2024. Um, and it would have made a lot of difference. Why? Because the roads that lead to the Ambassador Bridge are still municipal roads. And they're they're policed by the city of Windsor police and their authority is very limited with regard to those roads intersecting with the Canadian port of entry. The Gordie Howe Bridge is a highway to, to port of entry to highway link. So it's a 401 to Canadian POE to international bridge, US POE, and then I-75. So it's then governed on the US side by state troopers, versus city of Detroit. Uh, and on the Canadian side, it would be the Ontario Provincial Police, the OPP, governing the highway section. And, and the port of entry is under federal jurisdiction. So then you have OPP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, that then have different authorities under law who could then clear. It also, there's a matter of infrastructure too, Chris. Uh, when you're doing a highway to highway link, there's, there's going to be different kinds of ways to uh, build uh, deterrence to try to block traffic. We don't have that currently in leading up to the roads to the Ambassador Bridge, not on the Canadian side and certainly not on the U.S. side. We did have one question that came in regarding uh, really how this Ambassador Bridge uh, situation is apparently cleared. So two questions come out of this. Is the disruption at the border localized to eastern and midwestern states? Or might it also reach states in the Pacific Northwest on the border? And do we expect, now that the Ambassador Bridge is apparently cleared, disruptions in prices for cars and groceries to be short-lived? Well, I'll just fools rush in. So let me, uh, let me jump in on that one. So, so I think that there we need to separate out short-term effects medium term and then a bit longer term. And in the short term, one of the challenges for supply chains was rerouting traffic. I mean, this was a protest. It could easily have been an, uh, you know, an auto accident or something that chokes that narrow uh, part of the bridge. And to the extent that you add a little cost by going up around Port Huron or going out through a Buffalo Fort Erie, I think that's manageable in the short term. It does cause some chaos, but I think it would not have a long-term effect on prices. The near term, sort of going a little bit longer in the time horizon, what matters now is clearing out the ripple effects of this particular incident and um, the uncertainty of whether 
protesters are going to start up again. This was cleared by police. That does not mean that the protest has been satisfied or that the point has been made and that the drivers will not necessarily uh, intervene again. We've also seen this largely as a Canadian protest. And I think what people um, may not be familiar with is that uh, Canada used to have very east-west supply chains with a lot of things going into Toronto and Montreal and then getting distributed east and west. But now most Canadian supply chains are north-south. So the border matters a great deal on the Canadian side. So a lot of the Canadian drivers were united in this particular case. On the U.S. side, we know there are some drivers who are in sympathy with the Canadians. And we have not seen sympathy strikes or sympathy protest actions on the U.S. side. Unless and until we can resolve the underlying tension, we may be able to stop an individual protest incident. But we're going to face an uncertainty that this might flare up again. Um, and for that reason, you're going to start to see supply chains that were focused on just in time now thinking about resilience. And that may mean a second production line, inventories, maybe warehousing some parts and so on so that they can survive these disruptions. And then we go to the longer term. Oh, oh but just to say, by doing that, they're going to add to their costs. So that does start to communi communicate through an inflationary lens. The, the last sort of longer term concern, I think, goes to border risk. We after 9-11, the border was closed, I think, for a total of 20 minutes, but it had ripple effects that went for years. This has been a much longer disruption, especially if you consider the whole two years that we're almost completed uh, border restrictions. The calculation of firms now is going to look at where can we go to minimize this new factor of border risk, which puts our business uh, in some jeopardy. We've seen this in some auto supply companies. We've seen this in some other companies where they've expanded in the U.S. so they can serve their U.S. customer without having to worry about whether the border is going to be reliable. That may redound to some benefit for the, for, for the U.S., but it really will pinch Canada. If even Canadian firms decide they need to expand or add additional capacity on the U.S. side because they can't rely on the border being open. I think that's the risk that we're facing with continually disrupting the border. They're putting the Canadian economy in some jeopardy, and we're denying the U.S. and our best firms, the competitive advantage of their U.S. supply or their Canadian supply chain and some of the talent that's there that'll be hard to replace. So I think over the long term, though, that's how I would separate it out. The short term, little bit of disruption, probably it's mostly slow deliveries. Medium term, some risk of increased prices as people build in redundancy. Longer term, real risk if investment starts to follow uh, a fear of border risk and uncertainty. But that would just be me. I hand it over to Catherine or or, or to Mark. Well, well, I think all of Chris's observations are are spot on. I would just add, um, again, more at the regional local level in cross-border communities all along the 49th parallel, uh, folks are going to be hesitant to cross. The, if, if protests continue on either side, it's just an impediment for people who want to cross to say, you know what, I, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to deal with protesters. Is the border open today? Isn't it open today? And again, that will impact the cross-border regional economies in those areas that are uh, more urban across the border. Again, like Detroit, Buffalo, Niagara, um, uh, you know, Bellingham, uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit more in in these areas as opposed to, you know, uh, the prairie states, for example. You know, I, I maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic uh, than Chris and Catherine. You know, I I have looked at how people respond to certain decisions that get made on both sides of this border that seem they're head scratchers. They're, they're disconnected from the way people live, the way business is conducted. And I'd really, I, I'm really heartened by how people continue to cross and whether it's for work or for play. Hey, you know, I love my Detroit Tigers and I love my Detroit Lions and I love my Red Wings. Um, and I hope not too many people are laughing now, but it's still part of what makes up our culture and our shared culture. And people uh, find ways when they are allowed to cross to do that, whether they have to buy, you know, get a passport that costs them $75 or whether they have to prove their vaccination. There's a willingness to do that. Is there a, a lag time for that uptake? Sure, there is. 
Um, personally, I think I find the exchange rate is probably the, the number one d- deciding factor on whether somebody makes the trip or not. Also, how cold is the winter in Canada? If it's tolerable, people will stay. If it's not, they're going to get a flight out of Detroit Metro or anywhere else out of Pearson or out wherever they got to go, they're going to go somewhere hot and sunny. Um, so But from a business perspective, it's interesting talking to the automotive related uh, industries in this in this region. It's interesting when somebody says to me, Marta, in any one vehicle that we produce, there are about thirty six hundred separate parts. We are a global country, a global industry because we source globally for talent, for for materials for um, for all kinds of things, right? For services, this, this includes advertising, marketing. I mean, this is not just about the nuts and bolts. So it's interesting to me how much these companies rely on the immense landscape of talent from both countries. And when you look at that on a global level, most of the sourced talent comes from North America. And if somebody were to think about how do you disconnect that, I think the wisest thing would be to talk to the private sector, because from what I'm hearing, it's not it's not easy to disconnect and it's really not desirable for many, many reasons. I want to touch on something that Chris brought up a little bit earlier with the way that these folks, I guess, feel about how how they're being treated uh, and their status we got a question that came in and we heard the discussion about the financial impact of the protest, but what are your thoughts on the causes of the protest? I'm curious to see your perspective on this, whether or not it is government overreach or what it is as a classification is what Chris was talking about earlier between this essential, non-essential, and it seems like it goes back a little bit further than just looking in a vacuum at a vaccine mandate. I in my view it's it's just it's a symptom of a fundamental problem that not you know not only you know us in the United States are experiencing but um that democracies across the globe are experiencing and I think until we can figure out a way to maybe this sounds idealistic have a conversation or convene folks who think differently into the same room. Maybe that's not such a great idea, but you you get my point. There are broader, more fundamental issues at play here. And I think that these protests are one symptom of the underlying divisiveness. You know, um, I'd like to add that there are extraordinary examples across both our histories where decisions were made in real time facing extraordinary challenges. And although bureaucracies have a reputation of moving very slowly, I think if there's an opportunity to understand how the politics can move with the policy effectively, I think that is probably something we need to examine a little bit more closely. We often hear, um, you know, what was the root cause of of the truckers' protest? And, And Chris, you touched on this earlier. 90% 90% of the Canadian trucky, uh, truckers are vaccinated. Why would the federal government go after the 10% that are not vaccinated, probably for medical reasons, religious reasons, or other reasons? It was What was the risk calculation for going after a perfect 100 out of 100? I would say it was a huge miscalculation on the federal government's part. More so, you know, set that aside, and it ignited a whole series of, of agitations that have been building and building. And I think it's because, and we saw the Premier of Ontario today announce a drawdown of restrictions beginning March the 1st. Um, and what does that look like? And people are, are, you know, a collective sigh of relief, right? We don't have to produce our our proof of vaccination every time we go to the gym or to a restaurant. But you know what? We still need to wear a mask. I think people are looking for reasonable. What is reasonable at this time during the pandemic? And I and Chris, you touched on this. 
from what we are seeing at the Institute, is there an opportunity for our governments to make decisions in a more real-time base based on, as Catherine is saying, ongoing discussions from various perspectives with the private sector involved and experts at the table? It was done after 9-11. It was hugely successful. Um, it was successful at other times in our history. I think we need to examine how do we do that today. Um, I'm, I'm going to jump in. I, I, I can't say it better than either Catherine or, or Marta did, but I also know that I've seen a couple of questions pop up in the chat. So I'm going to try to cover, respond to your question, Aaron, but in a, in a slightly wider way. So I think that, I think that both of them are right that we've kind of come out wrong-footed on this particular issue. And maybe we're all guilty of paying more attention to what's been going on at the southern border than we do on the northern border. It often gets ignored, and anybody who's representing a northern state district knows that. It just It's the border that's mostly supposed to function, so we, we don't pay attention sometimes until it's too late. So that's maybe one uh, mea culpa on, on our part. To the question of what we Congress can do to support this, I think a couple of things. One, we bet a lot after 9-11 on these um, trusted traveler, trusted shipper programs. Not only do we put money into them, but we also made an implicit promise that the private sector, by securing their loading docks and running security checks on their personnel and their drivers and all of those things, they would make an investment and the return on that investment would be expedited movement across the border in a crisis. And this is not the first time that when we've had a pinch, we've been unable to deliver expedited service across the border. Now, this one isn't entirely our fault as a result of protest. But I think we have to really focus on that ROI if we want businesses to stay in these programs and even expand the number of people in them. Similarly with trusted travelers, the number of uh, there's a story that came out during our task force, and I tell it a lot because it's very poignant, where uh, a woman who is a friend of one of our task force members who lives in Winnipeg has a pretty serious stage four cancer. And she's been going down to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota to get treatment. And because at the time there were all these quarantine requirements where you have to stay and, and so forth, uh, stay in a government hotel for 14 days in Canada before you could go back, she realized she wasn't going to be able to go back and forth and make all of her appointments. And she said, what am I supposed to do? And the sheepish, the sheepish Canadian uh, Border Service Agency person had to say, listen, you know, the Americans will let you in, but it'll be tough for you to get back. Maybe you need to move uh, to Minnesota for a while so you can get your treatment. Maybe the best thing to do and not deal with the border. Now, that was a woman. And she said, well, why would I want to do that? And they said, well, it's just not essential what you're doing. And I would not have wanted to be the person who told her that her cancer treatment wasn't essential. But that's where the words have really worked against us. What if we had offered the ability of somebody who joined the Nexus program fair and square and shared some information about their purpose to be able to cross because we designated that to be essential or just low risk? So I think we have to work to make sure that our programs that we've invested in really deliver value for the people who are investing in them. That's my first thought. Second, I think we need to think a lot about border infrastructure. There's been a lot of discussion about infrastructure in Build Back Better and in other legislation that's coming before Congress. But if we are moving towards, and I hope we are, a more risk management way of handling these border issues, we need to give border officers decision support. Canada has an app. It's uh, sometimes uh, you know not praised as much, but it's an app where you can upload your information. It's called ArriveCan. And you can upload your information and it's like an electronic authorization. You can make sure that it's connected to your flight and, and then the border officer knows this has all been up there. Somebody's looked at it and you can sail through the border a little bit more easily. The US has no such app. We don't provide any easy way for people to signal their uh, vaccination status. And some of you will remember, this goes back about 15 years now, when we were talking about um, before Real ID had fully kicked in, the frustration of border officers trying to see if, if a driver's license that was presented to them was fake. And that's why a lot of border officers wanted a passport requirement at the border, because at least a passport, they felt that was easier to spot a fake in. With 50 states, 10 Canadian provinces, three territories, figuring out what a fake ID looks like is really a tough burden for somebody in the officer. So can we create something other than the little CDC card, which I think 
many people have, and it looks like you could easily, you know, make one up your own or make it up on a laser printer and come up with a reasonable facsimile. Can we give, but can we give border officers more ability to spot fakes and a more reliable basis on which to determine risk? We may also need more people and more testing capabilities at borders, at least at the busier crossings, if, if that's what we need. We don't have that in place. So I think there's a lot in terms of upgrading the border to be able to handle pandemics. It'll be very important. Last but not least, public information. And I don't think um, I don't think either government has necessarily done a great job of communicating to the traveling public or the shipping public about what the conditions they're likely to find at the border are and what they have to do to qualify to cross and whether they're going to face a short or a long delay. It can be a confusing process, particularly for people who don't cross all the time. So I think as we move to change the rules on the border, gradually lifting some of the pandemic restrictions or making them more focused on risk, the federal governments in particular and the Congress should think about communication and funding, public information so people know, even in Canada, what to expect at the border, that this is not being done to them, this is being done for them, and that we want to make sure that, that they have a good cross-border transit. Um, and I think that's something that could that really would do a lot of good. Some of you will go back to remember that Congress funded the Western Hemisphere Travel Initiative as the passport requirement was put in place to give people a sort of warning track so they could begin to make the adjustments and apply for passports and so forth. That was a good investment because I think it helped people get ready for a change in the rules. And thinking along those lines, I think, would also, uh, in this case, be quite useful. Over to you, Aaron. These folks who are on this call, the folks that are listening, these are policymakers. They work for members of Congress. So in these last few minutes that I have, I want to ask each of you, Chris just gave us a few thoughts, but maybe if for somebody whose boss is saying, look, I want to introduce legislation on this. I want some real, real time, real legislation or something that I can actually do to prevent future disruptions and things like that. What would you suggest? Well, I'll, you know, I'll start, Aaron. Um, I think the things that Chris has itemized are critical. We have some programs that the, the private sector has bought into, and they bought into it because they saw that for the amount of money they were going to put into it, they were going to have an ease of, of transferring from one jurisdiction to the, to the next. And somehow we need to leverage those uh, programs. My point is we need to be surgical. Uh, this doesn't require an overhaul of, of all kinds of things. It requires us to answer the question, if we want to prevent further interruption of the supply chain, if we really are aiming for secure and um, resilient supply chain, it's a, it's a function of what has, has worked well so far and what do we need to fine tune those things that have worked really, really well. And I would just add one thing from our perspective at the Cross-Border Institute that could help facilitate things moving along is this continuous analysis of the data we collect throughout the supply chain. Um, I mean, from a Canadian origin destination perspective, stuff comes in from the Port of Montreal, it gets put on trucks, most of it, and it's trucked all the way down to the to the end of Laredo, Texas, and then out to California, out to various other states. So the origin destination mapping shows us that it is truly across many, many states that this relationship has impact. So why do we not have a continuous analysis of data that then feeds better real-time policy making? That's the only thing I would add. Well, in addition to my colleagues' excellent comments, uh, again, I would just riff off of what they said and maybe suggest that in the next iteration, whatever that's going to be, of uh, Build Back Better, however it comes back to the fore, um, that perhaps um, congressional representatives can really elevate border infrastructure within that broader package to demonstrate the importance of the border and, and highlight the importance of the border to, you know, again, at least 36 states, I, you could argue all 50 states, um, and um, to the American um, worker, American population. I, I, I think that that might be one way to uh, start to crack this nut on a very practical 
uh, in a very practical manner. I, I can't add too much to that, but I'm going to put something else on the table that I think is bears watching. Uh, reports that we're seeing this week in Canada have started to look at the funding of the trucker protest. And one of the things that has come up is the idea that a significant amount of the funding or, or number of the funders were on the U.S. side. That happens. In the U.S., you know, people donate to causes. We don't think twice about it. I think sometimes, though, you contribute money to a Canadian political cause without necessarily understanding the Canadian politics of the situation. It can be counterproductive. But even more counterproductive is the impression that some Canadians have that this was a foreign funded operation by, you know, this or that politician, Elon Musk on a bad day. Money was coming across the border and it was starting to interfere in Canadian politics. To me, that uh, is, a, is a problem. Just the perception is a problem. Getting to the truth of that, I think, is really important because we need to build trust between the U.S. and Canada on, on issues like this. Now, the U.S. is a free speech country. It's very important for people to be able to express their views and spend their money uh, to express those views as they wish. But Canada, being a smaller country, if a small percentage of Americans cares about Canada and wants to invest in a trucker protest, we have almost 10 times the number of people. And when you add the exchange rate into that, you have this multiplier effect of interventions like that. Canada is rightly going to ask us for the donor lists from the GoFundMe campaign and some of the other uh, kind of operations. Rather than be reactive, I think Congress should take a look at this, try to establish the truth of it, and to the extent that there's a stomach for it, work with the Canadians to find a way to legitimately uh, restrict spending from outside groups in Canada in a way that's nonetheless consistent with free speech and, and the things that we want to support. We don't want to undermine charitable giving or support for you know, victims of Canadian wildfires because we want to constrain some political activity. This is very difficult ground. And I think if we are forced into reacting to this debate, we'll end up in a worse position than if we're proactive, thoughtful, and are able to get a handle on this situation, which obviously means more to the Canadians than it does to us, because they're the ones on the receiving end. But this probably won't be the last protest where funding has crossed the border. And uh, important to know the truth of that and to know uh, to maybe work with the Canadians to get a handle on it. But that would be my last suggestion. Thank you, Chris. And that gets us to the end of our time. If you within our audience are part of that small percentage of Americans who are very interested in U.S.-Canada issues, you will want to check out Chris's podcast uh, that he does with Scotty Greenwood at the Canadian American Business Council that looks at some of these larger umbrella issues of the Canada-U.S. relationship. It is called Canusa Street. You can check out all of our podcasts at wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts. Thank you. Chris, Marta, Catherine, this has been a, a great, uh, not only ground truth and facts, but also forward looking and give us a lot of points to look for in the policy world too. So we really appreciate this. See you all soon.